You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the second letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Our text this morning is from the verses 6 to 15 of this particular chapter. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary... We worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. We are into the last long weekend of the year, the summer of 2008. And that means that tomorrow is Labor Day. It's that annual holiday when all across the nation of Canada, special attention will be paid to the world of work and the efforts of working people. And as such, there will be parades in different parts of the country. There will be many celebrations, many speeches, all sorts of excitement. And in a way, beloved, all of that may be fitting. Work, after all, is a large part of our life and world. We all know something about it from the young boy who mows lawns and has a paper route to the teenagers among us who have part-time jobs, to the adults who hold down regular jobs of one kind or another. 
why even to the retired among us who are still involved in work. It may not be paid work, but still there are all of these jobs of one sort or another that still need doing. So, beloved, living is working. And that is worth some attention, even a holiday, and a celebration. But nevertheless, in the midst of all of this, there are also some regrets. For example, it is to be regretted that some will turn tomorrow surely into a political affair. They will use it as an occasion to bash big business and government, of course. They will take advantage of a golden opportunity to promote division, antagonism, and fear in our society. Labor versus management, the little guy versus the big guy, the rich versus the poor. You know the agenda. And now this is not to deny, beloved, that there are inequities in our society. All is not well economically. But nevertheless, it has to be said that the class struggle rhetoric is getting rather old, tired, and worn. It's time to work together. It's time to get rid of the them versus us mentality. It's time to ban stripes. It's time to find new ways to sort out workplace disagreements. Yes, and it is also time for one more thing, and that is to bring God back into the work equation. For who invented work? Who is the first worker, the best worker? Who gives us the ability to work? Who gives us the talents? And especially, who blesses it? God and work. Go hand in hand. Yes, and this is also something, beloved, that we see in our text of this morning. And in light of that, I preached to you on the following theme, an ancient appeal for a modern holiday. We're going to look at its content, its weight, and finally its incentive. Now, beloved, it is rather obvious, I think, that In our text, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a work problem. But precisely what kind of a work problem was it? For an answer, we need to go back more than 2,000 years to the city of Thessalonica, or as the natives today call it, Thessaloniki. And in that particular city, there was a young and budding church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had been instrumental in its institution during his second missionary journey. Only in that young church, there was also trouble. You can read about that elsewhere in this letter as well as in the previous letter. First, there was trouble because some were persecuting the church. And then there was also trouble because there were false teachers in the midst of the church. And third, there was trouble because among the members in this church, there were a group called by Paul the idol or the loafers, in Greek, the ataktoi. And now it is this third group that the Apostle Paul is zeroing in on in our text. 
He's dealing with the problems that their attitude and their conduct is creating in the congregation. And he's teaching the leaders and the members how to handle what appears to have been a rather difficult and trying situation. But exactly, beloved, what sort of situation was it? Why were these members not working? Why were they avoiding the workplaces of Thessalonica? Some commentators insist, and you can read about that in the commentaries, that these people were lazy by nature and preferred not to work. They would rather live off the generosity of the rich members in the church. And as such, these people were not unlike a segment of our population today who seem to hate all forms of work and think that society owes them a living. Other scholars, however, disagree. The problem, they say, is that these members in Thessalonica were not simply lazy. No, they were rather infected with the general Greek dislike for manual labor. After all, the Greeks were famous for their talking, debating, and especially for their philosophizing. So why sweat when you can talk? Why work when you can debate? But still, beloved, while these factors can't be totally discounted, there was really a third one that was driving the agenda. The reason why these members were not working was because someone among them had convinced them that Christ was coming again soon, and hence they had no need to work. And rather than being busy with matters of food and drink and clothing with a roof over your head, you should spend all of your time getting ready for the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, the stress in your life should be on the spiritual and not on the material. Forget about your body, worry about your soul, get it ready, fine-tune it. Prepare yourself. The Lord is coming again. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Makes sense. Biblical sense, doesn't it? Wrong. For in the first place, I remind you, beloved, that no one knows the day or the hour when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Only God the Father knows, and the Father is not telling any of us. And in the second place, the scriptures make it quite clear in any number of places that Christians are to greet the second coming, not by lying on the beach, but by working and praying their way towards it. The interim between then and now, is not to be spent doing nothing but philosophizing or theologizing. It's to be spent laboring and toiling, Paul says. Why, you notice here in our text, the Apostle Paul even led them by way of personal example in this regard. When he was among them, was he on a perpetual spiritual holiday? 
Was he twiddling his thumbs and just waiting? Was he only fine-tuning his soul? No, he insists that he was never idle while he was among them. Nor did he eat anyone else's food without paying for it. As a matter of fact, he stresses that he was working night and day. Working for the cause of the gospel. So they could never say that they learned this kind of behavior from the eminent Apostle Paul. Because they hadn't. But beloved, there was more that was wrong here. For not only did their laziness not rest on biblical precept or apostolic example, it also created acute problems in the life of the congregation. What sort of problems? Fellowship problems. Gossip, silly talk, rumors, slander, innuendos, disagreements. In the original Greek in which the Apostle Paul writes, there is a play on words here, and and the Niv translation catches it very well. When it translates, they are not busy, but they are busy bodies. In other words, in this congregation, there was a whole segment of people who were minding someone else's business and getting into other people's hair because they didn't have better things to do, supposedly. The peace of the congregation, and I might also add the reputation of the congregation, was at stake. Now it may well be, beloved, that some of you are not exactly in love with your work. But do you see what happens when people do not work? Idleness invariably produces chaos. Laziness is, as the expression goes, the devil's handmaiden. And indeed I would say to you that each of us should be glad... That our God has given us talents and abilities. That there's all sorts of work for us to do. That we can spend a good deal of our time laboring and working. And I would even encourage you in all of this. Identify your talents. Develop your talents. Use your talents. Put them to work. And then it doesn't matter whether the work be of a professional or semi-professional nature, whether it be skilled or unskilled, even, I dare say, paid or unpaid. What matters, first of all, is that you put your gifts to work, that you serve the needs of others, that you contribute to the building up of the church of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God. And thankfully, you can do that everywhere. Everywhere in Canada, everywhere in Mexico, everywhere around the world. Look around you, beloved, there is so much to do. 
There is so much need. There is so much opportunity. Now is not the time to rest and party. Now's the time to work and labor. But then, beloved, obviously some of the believers in Thessalonica disagreed with the Apostle Paul. So what's he to do with them? Does he criticize them and leave it at that? Does he choose henceforth simply to ignore them and bypass them? Well, you'll notice the Apostle Paul takes a rather strong stand against them. The language that he uses is military in tone. For example, how often doesn't he use the word command as well as the word obey? Verse 6, we command you. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Verse 12, such people we command and urge. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction. You see, the Apostle Paul does not decide to treat this as a minor matter. Now, he considers their behavior to be a serious distortion and perversion of the gospel. So how should the local Christian community in Thessalonica respond? Besides talking about it, many churches would do nothing. They would not think or dream of administering one form of church discipline or another. They would find that far too repugnant, too repulsive, too unchristian. That's the attitude also today. Somebody else sins. Someone else perverts the unity of the congregation. Too bad. But beloved, notice, that's not how the Apostle Paul reacts. As you go on in our text, you see that he now lays down the when, the why, and the how of discipline. First, there has to be a true need. In other words, the church is not allowed to exercise discipline when it comes to some minor offense. But only when the offense is public, deliberate, and persistent. With regard to the idlers in Thessalonica, Paul had admonished them repeatedly. He had admonished them in person, by letter, by example. And they'd ignored him. This was a case of open rebellion and defiance. Defiance against apostolic authority. Even divine authority. The second, there has to be some type of action. In their case, the action that the Apostle Paul commands is that the believers, verse 6, are to keep away from every brother who is idle. And you know what that means? That means that there should be no regular, intimate, normal association with them. The believers in the Thessalonica church are to avoid these errant members. They're not 
to welcome them into their homes. They're not to sit around table with them. They're not to talk with them and act with them as if nothing is wrong and everything is hunky-dory in their life. Paul says that's not allowed to happen. And third, when it comes to practicing this discipline, Paul appeals, notice, to the whole congregation. He could have singled out the elders only, seeing it is their specific task to admonish the wayward. Only he doesn't do that. He calls on the entire congregation, on all the members, to deal with these errant believers. When someone goes astray, we all have a task and a responsibility, you say. And fourth, note as well that this discipline is not to be done in a harsh, cruel, hostile, or condescending manner. Paul says near the end of our text, yet do not regard him as an enemy. This is not a brother who should be completely written off and permanently rejected. Now realize he's still a brother. But then he's an erring, wayward brother. And fifth, Paul also specifies the purpose of all of this, and it is, notice, positive and constructive. He wants the delinquent to feel ashamed. But simply, he wants them to feel so at unease with themselves that they're driven to reconsider, to repent, and to return. Reawakening and reinstatement is the ultimate aim. We must do what we can to win back and win over our brother. All in all then, beloved, we receive some real instruction here on how to deal with those who claim to be Christian, but who do not follow the Christian way. And of course, here in our text, it has to do with the idol or the, the loafers. But at the same time, you'll understand this. This reaches much further than this. For it teaches us that we should be concerned about all who profess the name of Christ, but who do not walk in the way of Christ. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that also today. A lot of pious talk that's not backed up by a pious walk. Well, let's be honest, at times, even you and I, have that happened in our lives? Yes, and when it happens, we need to be there for one another. In the Christian church, beloved, we need to hold one another accountable. We need to be willing to speak to one another, not in a spirit of haughtiness or superiority, but in one of love and humility. So when you see your brother or your sister sin or act in a manner that is contrary to the will of God, do not ignore it. Do not make excuses for it. Do not put off the whole matter until another day. 
Now reach out to them. Speak to them. Try your utmost to convince them and to convict them. But of course, all of that may raise the natural question, why? Why should I bother? You know what happens. They're just going to get mad at me. And there goes our friendship. Is it really worth the trouble? And I can understand that. But really, what is that? What is that kind of response? Isn't that pure self-interest? Isn't that proof that you care more about yourself and your own comfort zone? If you really loved and cared for that person, you would seek their good and their blessing always. And sometimes that means telling and speaking the truth in love. So what should drive our concern, beloved? It should be love. Real, true, neighborly love. But it should also be something else. It should be our love for our Savior. Notice that Paul's call for action in this matter is not driven only by concern for these disobedient believers. It is even more driven by his loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that's why he opens our text with the words, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And later he continues, we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is acutely aware of the fact that ultimately he's not serving himself, he's serving the Lord. This is not about him, this is not about his ego. It's not about his will. And neither is it about his name or reputation either. Now this is about Jesus Christ. This is about the God who elected him, confronted him, converted him, commissioned him. This is also about the Christ who has saved him and redeemed him and renewed him and all of his people. It's about the Christ who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the final analysis this is all about, Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, goes not just for Paul. It goes for all of us. Why in the Christian church do we do what we do? Why are we what we are? What drives us? What motivates us? What explains who we are? And how we live? That also has to do with our work. Why should we work diligently until the day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns? Why should we develop and employ our talents? Why should we function as faithful workers in the vineyard of the Lord? Is money our aim? Is it all about the next trip or holiday? 
Is it about the toys that we can then buy? Is it about the more and more and more? What drives our life? Whatever the Apostle Paul reminds us, there's only one true, real, genuine motivator, and that's Christ. If Christ doesn't drive your Christian life, I dare say it's false. In tribute and thankfulness to my Savior, I do the work I do, I use the talents I have been given because of him and for the glory of his name. I will live a life of dedication, holiness, and commitment. Truly, may our faith in him drive us and shape us. And so all of you students here, as you enter into a new academic year this week, do your best for Christ. And members, as you go about your daily work, do it as unto the Lord. And Anna and Jeremy, as you do your work in Mexico, do that also, as always, unto the Lord. And be assured of this. As the Apostle Paul says at the end of that wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A lot of the work that we do that's centered on us and our own agendas is questionable. We are convinced that this will pay dividends, and perhaps it does, but only for a small time or short time and only in this life. But on the other hand, if you're looking for the kind of work that really pays dividends, lasting, eternal, real dividends, then work always for the Lord and in the Lord. Have a great Labor Day tomorrow. Have a great year of labor. And have a great life of labor. But then, always in the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.